Welcome, 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 especially if you are new or you've just been with us for a short period of time. We do hope that you uh, would experience the same hospitality that God has shown us, that you would experience that as well. Uh, my name is Trevor. I am uh, the lead pastor here at Risen, and it's so exciting to be with you on a Sunday morning. Uh, there's just no place I'd rather be on Sunday morning than together with you all. And uh, we are walking through and have been walking through the book of 1 Timothy all summer, and we're almost done with it. This week and next week we will finish up. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6 because that's where we're going to spend some time together this morning. Whoa, drop my glasses. All right, off to a rough start. Here we go. Uh, it's a... Uh, and we've got, we've got installation of some deacons today, and we've got membership class. Membership is just the way I always, it's, it's making our church your church. It's just a way for you to say, this is my church. I want to be a part of this. I'm committed here. Um, otherwise, we do hope that you would feel welcome here, but uh, we're likely to see you as someone who's just checking things out or maybe passing through or visiting. Um, we like to know who we are um, because it helps us to know how to, who, who are the one another's we're supposed to live out. And so membership is an opportunity to do that. Come join. If you hate membership or you're against it, or you would just come and join us. Like, I'm going to give you a burrito, and I'm going to try to sell you on it, but no pressure. No one's pressured to become a member of the church. Everyone should be a member of a church. We hope this one, but if not this one, then we hope to help to find you another great church. All right, uh, so that's that. And then if you're ladies, women's uh, lunch is going to be fantastic. Please join them for that. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me begin with a quote from Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers, much like Agatha, Agatha Christie, she was a great kind of English detective novelist, um, English writer of the 20th century, and she has this quote that's always sort of stuck with me, um, and this is the quote in full. She said, Dorothy Sayers said, how can anyone, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Dorothy Sayers was, uh, was sort of interested in why anyone would be a Christian when her perception of Christianity was, don't get drunk, come to church, you're good. And she thought, what kind of religion doesn't speak to the rest of our lives? 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, I think really will have some practical implications and really will speak to you in your Monday through Saturday as well as your Sunday. Most of 1 Timothy in our journey together so far has been about the church. Uh, last week, if you joined us, you made it through a, a hurricane. Congratulations, Californians, you endured. We will, we will survive. Um, and we were here, we had a, an unplugged set, and so uh, it was lovely to be together, and we talked last week in our, a sermon we talked about pastors and, and, 
and paying good pastors and disciplining bad pastors and selecting qualified pastors. And, and, and the, as the letter of Timothy begins to wrap up, um, Paul, is, is going to, who's writing to Timothy, is going to highlight some everyday life things that I think are going to be important for us and will certainly, hopefully, speak to the other nine-tenths of your life this morning. Um, so this is uh, the text we've got is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Join me in reading um, uh, the first 10 verses. Here's what Paul says. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who, are, those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This morning in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'm outlining this way. I want to look at the first two verses, which I think have something to say about your work. Uh, the second set of verses, 3 through 5, something about worship. And verse 6 through 10, something about those wants that you have, that you're hoping to, to, to receive, the wish list in your life. Paul here is speaking of some of the dangers that happen in our life when it comes to these different areas. The danger in our work, the danger in those relationships, the danger in our worship and the dangers in our wants. But he begins with work. In verse 1, he launches right into things with Timothy, and he tells Timothy, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, when you're reading this, this version of the Bible is called the English Standard Version. They've made a decision that maybe you notice if you're reading out of a different version, and that is that they've translated the word slaves, bondservants, or bondservants, slaves. And the reason they're doing that is because when I say slavery, instantly you have a particular view in mind. Our imagination around slavery is largely chattel slavery in the West. And so we think of slavery a particular way. And the translators of the ESV want you to see that slavery as we think about it and ancient bondservants are different. 
Make no mistake, slavery as we conceive of it and as we have practiced it in our country is evil and wrong and it is a complete violation of God's law. Wherever countries have become more Christian, they have sought to eradicate slavery. Even though, honestly, in history, there have been Christians who have misused the Bible in order to be able to keep people enslaved. Paul has said specifically that enslaving people is wrong. You maybe didn't catch that when we re- way back when Mark Sim was teaching in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But in 1 verse 10, uh, uh, Paul says that enslavers are committing evil acts. And so that's, he sees that as wrong. But what you need to understand is that the primary economic relationship in the ancient world was one of slave and master or bond servant and master. American slavery is, was very race-based. It was sort of permanent, and it was certainly involuntary. Much of the slavery in the ancient uh, world was not race-based. It was not permanent, and it often was voluntary, a way of paying off debts. And it became, as I said, the primary economic relationship in the ancient world. When we think about our primary economic relationship in our world, we think about bosses and employees. That's predominantly how that works in our world. And so it's kind of like that. And so as the gospel began to go forth, as people began to go everywhere saying, Jesus, that teacher from, from, from Nazareth, he, who claimed to be the son of God, he was doing miracles and he really lived. And obviously, like you just know him and he died and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again and he ascended and he is the son of God and there is forgiveness in him. And they were telling the world, people from all over social classes were believing and coming to faith in Christ. This was affecting business owners like Lydia, who we looked at a few months ago as a church. But it also was affecting bond servants, the people who are often the lowest class of society. And as those bond servants were becoming Christian, um, Paul addresses them a few times throughout his writings. At one point to the, in the book of Colossians, Paul tells the bond servants, he says, he reminds them, which we need to be reminded of, no matter who your boss is, You ultimately work for Christ. That's something we still need to hear today. But as bond servants were hearing again and again, no matter who your boss is, you work for Christ. Imagine what started to happen. Do you see a problem built into that message that could emerge? What happens when you start telling people who are bond servants that they have really one master and his name is Jesus? Right? They began to look at their bosses and say, I'm Christian, you're not the boss of me now. (laughs) To their bosses. And so Paul recognizes this, and he says, if you're a bondservant and you have a non-Christian boss, he'll get to Christian bosses in a moment, but if you have a non-Christian boss, regard your bosses, your masters, as worthy of honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. It's no good to walk into work and to say, I'm a Christian now. Jesus is my boss. You're not. It's no good to walk in and say, I've got a new Lord. He's not you. It's not helpful to walk into your boss and say, no, I won't be doing that. I'm called to serve Christ, not the email you asked me to send. So if you are a non-Christian boss and your bond servants start becoming Christian and then they start looking at you and saying, you're not our boss anymore, 
imagine what you start thinking about the Christian faith. You're probably not showing up with them to church on Sunday. You probably don't want other people to hear the gospel. And you're probably not a big favor of this movement of bond servants becoming Christian. Because you might go around saying, oh, the Christians? Oh, they are the worst employees. And imagine what happens in an ancient world when all of a sudden you discover that the bonds are, oh, they became, oh, what happened? He became Christian. Then what happened? Oh, it was the worst. He started telling me I'm not his boss. He started uh, abandoning his commitments. He started disrespecting me. And so Paul says, no, the, the Christians should never be the worst employees. They should be the best employees. They should be honoring their masters so that the name of God won't be reviled. The way that you work Monday through Friday impacts the reputation of Christians and the gospel. If we're not careful, we have a tendency to become compartmentalized Christians and to think that our, our faith is really about Sunday, but it makes no difference for the other nine-tenths of our life. Notice that Paul here is concerned. He's concerned that if you have a non-Christian boss and non-Christian co-workers, how are they going to think about Christians and Christ and the name of God because of the way that you work. Wouldn't it be amazing, just like think about this for a moment, wouldn't it be amazing living in kind of a post-Christian Los Angeles if there was a movement of employees that was just scouring churches to find Christians to hire because they believe that when we hire a Christian, we hire the best employees because they do all of their work as though they are working to honor their God. That would be awesome. So, so Paul says that the way that you impact, the way you work, impacts the way that people perceive God. Um, it wasn't too long ago that I read a, a story of a, uh, a man who worked at a bank, and um, he was uh, trying to win over new customers. And the common practice in the bank was that to win over new customers, you would look for ways of kind of whining and dining new customers. You would take them out to uh, fancy meals, and you would try to win them over as clients. And uh, there was this one man who worked for this one bank, and he would always submit his expenses for, uh, for winning for clients, and his expenses were always like almost nothing. They were so little, but he always retained the most number of clients. And people would ask him, what is his secret sauce? And he would say, well, while everyone else is taking them out to nice, fancy dinners, I invite them over to my home to sit around my table with my family. And when they see who we are as a family and the kind of people we are, they go, you're the kind of person I want to trust with my money. This Christian man, just being Christian, impacted the way that people thought about his faith. Because you're working where you're working, people are going to see God more clearly, or they're not. Now Paul turns in verse 2 
and, and says, what about those who have believing masters? Well, verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So the question emerges in verse 2, which is, what happens if my boss is a Christian? Surely, if I'm a Christian and my boss is a Christian, I don't have to respect him, right? Right? That's the thought. I mean, after all, isn't it true that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, but we're all one as a part of this family? And imagine what would happen if, and again in Ephesus, you are likely to have this, which is a bond servant who is a Christian and the, and the master is a Christian come into the same church and they're worshiping the same God, that those, those employees might begin to think that they don't have a responsibility to listen to their boss because we're one in Christ. But Paul says no to that as well. He says, if you have a believing master, you should be respectful. Why? Because they are your brothers. When, when, they, when you show up on Sunday, you are one in Christ. For every person who is a Christian enters the same way, repentance and faith. There's no, there is no uh, like VIP entrance into the kingdom of God. There's no there's no like sneaky back door if you just, if you've got a person who knows, I know a guy who knows a guy who can get me tickets to that. That's not this, right? The Christian faith is everybody same way, repentance and faith in Christ. That, that's what happens. But if you are, are brothers and, and are sisters with your boss, that does not eliminate their role as your boss when you are not here together. No, in fact, you should serve all the better because when you serve your boss, you are serving a brother or a sister. You love each other as we're supposed to. That's what brothers and sisters do. So if you have a non-Christian boss in your life, show them Christ by the way that you work. And if you have a Christian boss, serve them all the better. And so as you begin to think about your work, and maybe for some of you, you've just never connected Sunday to Monday, how are you going to, when you show up tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. for many of you, how are you going to demonstrate the goodness of God and the beauty of the gospel? If you're not sure how to do that, first, do excellent work. Take pride in the work that you do. Secondly, Pray for your coworkers and your boss. Some of you are like, the last person I'd pray for is my boss. Pray for your boss. Pray for your coworkers. Give a reason for the hope that is within you. you I, let me just say this. The people who are hustling in the workplace and in the marketplace for prestige, privilege, power, and money, thinking somehow they're going to be satisfied are not satisfied, and they need to know that there's something beyond that that they're made for. And you are probably a person that God has placed in their life to, to remind them of that goodness. And just, you know, by the way that you do your job and treat your job, show them Christ. So Paul says, this is our responsibility with our work. Secondly, he turns over to worship. And he says in verse 3, verses 3 through 5 of worship, he says, um, 
teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So Paul knows that from the earliest days, as people are proclaiming the gospel, there are going to be people who are going to have different doctrine. And he has been telling this from the beginning, right? All the way back in 1 Timothy 1, he really talks about the importance of doctrine in verses 3 through 7 of 1 Timothy 1. Now, what's so key is that Paul cares about and is urging constantly for us to care about doctrine and, and over style and sub, uh, uh, style. Doctrine over style. And the reason that I, I want to point that out is because I think that often in the church we have flipped those. That our tendency is to care first about style and secondly about substance. When what we are supposed to care about is substance and not so much style. Often Christians are lukewarm on doctrine, but they have strong opinions about how cool their church is. Or, or this is going to maybe even hit closer to home, they care um, a little about what their pastor believes and a lot about how he votes. That's a mistake, right? We ought to be, we ought to be zealous on doctrine and more lukewarm on politics. And as long as the church has been around, there have been people who've claimed to be Christian but been destructive to the church. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. They're going to come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're wolves. And the way you'll recognize them is by their fruit. Paul, too, here is telling Timothy, Timothy, there are people who are teaching different doctrine, and how are you to know? It's, they're teaching something that does not agree with the sound. That word sound means healthy. The healthy, sound, right words of Jesus and the teaching, the life that corresponds to that teaching. So you may be aware of people in our culture today who say, you can believe in Jesus, but you don't have to live differently than anybody else. Paul says that people who teach that are arrogant. And they're obsessed with almost anything but unity in Christ. They're not really trying to reconcile the church. They're not trying to be at peace. They're creating friction and division. And some people, and I don't know if you've seen people like this ever, attempt to exploit the church for their own financial gain. That happened then. It happens now. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. Next slide. He says, uh, their constant friction among people, depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And here gain is financial. They use religion to profit off of the people. I am, as a pastor, always concerned about people who, are, who profit off of the people of God who use the people of God. A popular thing today is to make a lot of fame by critiquing the church. There are too many people, now, just be, uh, let me, step aside. Um, there are people who I think are rightfully calling the church to faithfulness, and if you're not careful and you pay attention enough, you'll also discover there are people who it seems like what they want is to constantly stir up division so that you'll buy their next book. 
be aware of those who are not about the unity of the church. Be cautious around anybody who says they are Christian and has found a way to separate Jesus from his words. People who say, you can follow Jesus, but you don't need to take what he says seriously. Pay attention to their morality, to their views on doctrine, to their views on sexuality, identity, justice, etc., etc., etc. And church, be very careful following or listening to anyone who says, I am a Christian, you can follow me as an authority, but has separated Jesus from his teachings. In fact, I would say one of the best questions you can always ask anybody is, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he Lord? And by Lord, I mean, do, we, do you believe that we have to follow him? We have to follow, submit and follow him? Is he our Lord? That's a good start. Is he our Savior? Is he God in flesh? Is he the Son of God? Is he who he said he is? Are we to do what he said we are to do? You want to get yeses out of all those questions. And when you're evaluating other religions, what they teach about Jesus is the most important thing. So be careful that you don't follow people who don't follow Jesus. And be careful around anyone who says, give me money so you can be blessed. The prosperity gospel has done so much damage to people. It has promised them that if they would just give more, that then they would be blessed. It has not called them to the life of Christ, which includes difficulty and struggle. So be careful who you follow. Be careful who you read. Remember last week we talked about how it takes a little while to examine the fruit? Examine the fruit, but just ask this question all the time. Is the person that you are admiring as a Christian leading you towards greater love of God and greater love of neighbor? And if you're ever not sure if someone you're reading or following is worth it, you can always ask me, and I'm happy to give you my insight. So worship matters. There have always been people who have attempted to steer the people of God away from God, even in the name of God. Jesus says at one point, you, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I didn't know you. So that's worship. Third, wants are wants. Notice that Paul has just gotten done saying, they use godliness as a means for gain. Godliness as a means for financial profit. And, and here then Paul turns and says that godliness is not a means for great gain. When he's talking about wants, he says godliness is the gain if it comes with contentment. Sound teaching, Paul says, leads to godliness. Godliness is the way we live our lives as Christians. In the book of Acts, it's called the way of Christ. So exploiting godliness is bad, verse 5, but godliness is good and great gain when it's infused with contentment. We are so discontent. When it's summertime, we can't wait for it to be fall. When it's fall, oh, we can't wait for winter. When it's winter, oh, it's so dark and cold. When's spring going to come? 
We're always looking forward to that next step. When we're little kids, we can't wait to be older. Older people wish they were younger. Everywhere we go, people are discontent with what they have. And I, we live in a landscape that keeps you perpetually dissatisfied so that you can continue to consume with the hopes that maybe another purchase, another thing, when that moment comes, then I will be happy. We never really get what we want when we want it, and so we find ourselves always hungry for the next step, the next thing. I just need to get that job. You get that job. Well, it's not the job. I just got to get to this place in my job. Okay, you get there. Oh, it's not. It's once I get to this level of my job, then I'll be man, I can't wait to retire. Then it's just like, oh, we just all do this. And Paul says, godliness with contentment is what we are after. Now, contentment doesn't mean like, oh, I'm full after a meal, like I'm content. That's not what it means. It means to be self-satisfied. It had been used by the Stoics at the time to refer to being self-sufficient no matter what happens. This is a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Marcus Aurelius said, I love this quote. This quote just as a Stoic flies in the face of everything in our world that you would say. Uh, he said, Marcus Aurelius said, choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. <laughs> Don't feel harmed and you haven't been. Right? There's this old stoicism that's just like, yeah, just choose. You just you have it in yourself. Just choose to be able to endure any sort of thing that you're facing. But that's not what Paul means. Paul has talked about contentment before. In Philippians chapter 4, or I mean, he, he's talked to other places. Philippians 4, he says this, I am not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul in Philippians 4 is saying, I know, I've been in prison. I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have a little. I know what it's like all through and through. And I've learned the secret of contentment. What is that secret? It's not self-sufficiency. It's Christ-sufficiency. With Christ, I can be content no matter what. What would you trade in your life for Christ? How many of us wake up in the morning and think, I need Christ and this thing, and then I'll be satisfied? No, what Paul is saying is that the secret is that Christ is worth more than everything, and if you have him and nothing, you have everything. If you have everything and not Christ, you have nothing. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon used to tell a story of an old woman who had um, just a small piece of bread. And uh, that's all she had, and a small glass of water. And she, she famously said, I have all of this and Christ too? Like, I, we say it all of the time, and let's not ever let this just fall on deaf ears. 
Being a Christian means that Christ lives in you. We sometimes ask people the question, are you a Christian? That's a decent question. But man, think about this. Like, the question is not, are you a Christian? It's, does Christ live in you? And if Christ lives in you, what more do you really need to be satisfied? You have the greatest treasure. Therefore, you have what, it, what you need to be content in all circumstances. How content are you really? How often are you like me, finding yourself going, I have Christ, yes, that's nice, but I just need that too. Paul says in verse 7, why? Because you bring nothing into the world and you take nothing out of the world. So be content with Christ and your life and the things that keep your life going because you're born with nothing and you die with nothing. Famous story of a woman who uh, after her funeral, uh, a, a woman passed away, and, and someone came up to um, the, the pastor who was leading the funeral and said to the pastor, how much did she leave? And the pastor said, everything. <laughs> she left everything. Paul said he learned that the secret of contentment. We, we, we shouldn't really need anything more than the basic necessities. And so we can be content with those. We can be content with plenty and with prison. We can be content by accepting whatever God has given us. So we don't need to go around thinking, I need X to really be satisfied, because to do that is to say that Christ is not enough. We hope in God. Paul is not talking in this passage to the rich. He's talking to those who want to be rich. So if you're here this morning and you're rich, come back next week. That's for you. But this week, if you're here and you want to be more rich, this is for you. They're looking around and coveting. Coveting is to look around and say, man, I wish I had that. And let me just say this. I love this, right? We don't think coveting's a big deal. Waking up in the morning, looking around at what other people have and going, man, I wish I had that instead of what I currently have. But at the seed of coveting is this posture. And I hope that, I hope that God helps you see yourself more clearly this morning. Um, the, the, the heart of coveting is saying to God, God, you're a bad distributor of resources. That's what it is. It's saying, God, you don't know how to give good gifts. I do. You gave that to them. You made a mistake. You should have given it to me. Which is just another way of saying, God, scoot over. I'd like to sit where you're sitting. I'd like to be in charge. We forget that there's a pride in the heart of coveting, which says, God, I know better than you about how to distribute good gifts. So, Paul says, don't be anxious about your bank balance. Stop being anxious about your lifestyle or the quality of the home or house you live in. Be content and thank God every day for what you do have. And be generous with what he has given to you. Because what he has given to you is not just for you, but it's for you to bless others. And then Paul gives some of the strongest words he will give in this entire letter, and you know some of these words. He says in verse 9, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation to a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he quotes, you know, you've probably heard this quote a million times, 
but you've heard it again incorrectly. It doesn't say uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, and it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He, he talks about, in our world, we like to talk about if you're poor, the trap of poverty, and that's real. It's real. But there's a, there's a, there's a trap of being wealthy that we don't think is real sometimes, and it's this illusion that exists over our city, which is like if you just have more money, then you're going to be great, which is it's just, it's just not true because some people are so poor, all they have is money. Wealth is dangerous. It's mentioned again and again. Jesus said in Luke 12, take care and be on guard against covetedness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now our culture says that is dead wrong. Jesus tells a story of a rich man with a storage facility. And and Jesus says that he keeps acquiring and continues to build storehouses. And Jesus says, what's the point this night your very life will be required of you? Watch out, brothers and sisters. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Greed leads to all kinds of problems, and I think we all know it. I can't tell you how many times I have sat down with someone in the church who believes two things, that someone else's pursuit and desire greedily is led to destruction, and secondly, it would not happen to them. So Paul says, accept what God has given you because you have this great opportunity to show the world that Jesus is enough. Our world doesn't think that Jesus is enough, and Christians do no service to that message when they join in with the world by saying, I agree. I need Jesus and these other things as well. Show the world that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and in that he says this. He says, life is never made unbearable by circumstances but only by lack of meaning and purpose. If, if you're here this morning and you, um, you are perpetually discontent, I want you to know that there is, uh, there is bread that if you eat of it, you'll never be hungry again. There's water that if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. That there's peace that surpasses all understanding. That the deepest desires of your heart are satisfied in a person who lived, died, and rose again on the third day. Jesus, who says to anybody who is discontent, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. If you're here this morning and you're not Christian and you're dissatisfied, you were made to find satisfaction in Christ. And the only way to find that satisfaction is to turn from your sins to trust in Jesus, to follow him, to give him your life, to make him your Lord and Savior by faith and faith alone. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, if you're a part of our church, when you go to work Monday morning, would you demonstrate the gospel? When you're listening and growing in your faith, would you Be cautious that you believe the true gospel. 
And in your lifestyle, in your Amazon cart, when you're at Costco or Best Buy, whatever stores you find yourself in, maybe a new car dealership, would you savor the gospel more than anything so that the world might know that Jesus really is enough? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do not only care about our Sunday. You care about our Monday and our Tuesday and every day. You care about all of the moments in between. You care about the things that we want. In fact, you know what we need better than we do. And you're a good father. We're, we're, not, we're not great parents. And you're a good father. And when we ask you for gifts, you give them. Because you know it's best for us. But Lord, I, I pray, and this is going to sound like a crazy prayer, Lord, don't put anything into our hands that would keep us from savoring you most. Don't give us anything we want. If we got it, it would replace you. And so, Lord, we, we pray that prayer and struggle, I think, to pray it and to mean it. But it is our prayer that we would be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. For in and through Christ, we have life today and tomorrow and life forever. We will all die and then we take nothing with us, but we still have you. We have you now, we will have you then if we are united to you by faith. So I pray for the difficult bosses and the difficult work, the jobs we don't want to do. I pray, Lord, that we would do it in ways that would glorify and honor you. I pray that we would pray for our difficult bosses, employees, coworkers, that they would see Christ in us and they would begin to taste the hope that they have been made for. Give us ears and eyes to follow those who are gonna lead us down the path of righteousness. Save us from any wolves in sheep clothing who desire to peel your people away from your church, who foster dissension and division. Help us to want you more than anything. Help us to be a people who when people ask us how we're doing, we can say we are content. And when people say, how could you be content? We say, oh, I have Christ. Of course I'm content. I have been forgiven. I have been redeemed. Christ lives in me. And he'll carry me from this life into the life to come. We pray for our church and for this morning. Be with us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit that we might live faithfully as your people, showing the world the beauty of the gospel. It's in your name we pray.